Hey, it's Shane here. Throughout the majority of my career, I spent thousands of hours on my technique to try to be as close to perfect as I could be. But the one thing I didn't work on was my mental skills. On the exact mindset I needed every ball to be able to access all of my technical skills that I worked so hard to develop. Well, I've recently released my book, Winning the Inner Battle, which has all of the information that you will ever need to deeply understand how you can create the correct mindset for you so that you can bring the best version of yourself every time you step out into the middle. Go to shamewatson.au to purchase a copy of Winning the Inner Battle now. It is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook versions. Well, it's now time for your episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Enjoy. The best advice I was ever given, and the, and what I hang on hung on to the most was when I got down to Footscray and, and with this Ron Gorn, he just said to me one night, "The harder you work in the easy times, the easier it becomes in the hard times." And I sort of looked at him and as, as a as a seventeen year old, what the hell does that mean? And he just said, mate, if you're going to take shortcuts of training, you're going to take them in the game. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lessons Learned with the Greats. I'm Shane Watson, and today we are joined by one of my favourite cricketers growing up, who I'd have to say was the most mimicked and copied bowler in the backyard of any one of his generation. (laughs) (laughs) Not only was this guy a world-class fast bowler, he was one of the true characters of the game that engaged everyone from the young kid growing up to the 90-year-old cricket tragic. Murph Hughes, thank you so much for being on my show. Oh, what an absolute pleasure. (laughs) Uh, Murph was one of the backbones of Australian cricket's turnaround in the mid to late 80s. And by the time he retired in 1994, the Australian cricket team was a very dominant figure in world cricket again. Merv played 53 test matches, taking 212 wickets at a great average of 28.38 with seven five-wicket hauls. And he also played 33 one-day internationals, taking 38 wickets. Okay, Merv, there are a lot of awesome highlights that I remember of you when I was growing up. But one that really stands out to me the most was your amazing performance in a losing side against the incredible West Indies team in Perth during the 88-89 Aussie summer. To get 13 wickets in a test match against the names of like Haynes, Greenwich, Richie Richardson, the great Sir Viv and Carl Hooper, just to name a few, that's a serious, special game and performance. And to throw into the mix, just a, just a cheeky little hat-trick as well, over two innings. <laughs> uh, what do you remember about that very special time? Um, yeah, it was a great time for Australian cricket, I think. Uh, a lot was lost on the fact that World Series cricket took most of the older players away and that was a pay dispute. And then when we started to rebuild, um, we got to about 85 and we lost players to the Rebel Tour of South Africa. So there's about 17, 18 of the better and more experienced players went over there. And just to open the, the doors for a lot of guys that weren't ready to play Test cricket, and, and I was one of those, got the opportunity. But as a side, we grew. Uh, Bob Simpson was was coach, AB was appointed captain, Laurie Sewell from West Australia was chairman of selectors and we just grew as a side and um, by the time we got to 88, 89 and then the 89 Ashes, most of us have been together for probably three or four years and we started to believe that we're good enough to play at that stage but up till then, I I reckon AB, I'm surprised he's got a hair on his head, he just would have been pulling his hair out. Like he just led by example. He was a great captain and didn't have much under him. 
it's an it's an amazing time in Australian cricket. And and to to talk about that test match for obviously a personal highlight taking those wickets, but when you get beaten by about 200 runs, you walk off, and I, I remember they've come in and said, you're man of the match, and you're still sitting there thinking, we, we've just lost a game by a couple of hundred runs. Um, you've, you've, everyone's sort of worked their butt off to, to stay in the game, and we, we just virtually got smashed, and you're just thinking, I don't want it. And mm-hmm. um, I'll look at it now, and you think, I'm, I'm glad I went up and got it. <laughs> but, yeah, like, like you said, like the, the West Indies at that time were ruling world cricket and to, to play against the best and, and do well against the best, um, it's always satisfying. Certainly was, mate. Jeez. Um, Merv, you achieved so much and had so many very special memories on the field during your career um, and off the field. <laughs> but is there one highlight on the field <laughs> that really stands out to you um, the most as you look back over your career? Oh, probably that 89 Ashes series from from start to finish. Um, when, the, when the side got announced, there's was, there was probably a couple of big announcements that I reckon Craig McDermott and Mike Whitney didn't get selected. And... Um, we were, we were <laughs> described as a, the worst team ever selected to, to re- represent Australia. But within the group, um, like I said, we'd been together for about four years. So Steve War, um, Healy, Mark Taylor, um, uh, the, the core group of, of those guys were, were coming through. And um, we had the bonus for us in 89. We got Terry Alderman back. Um, we got Trevor Haynes back and Carl Rackerman back. So three experienced players um, and Terry Alderman in, in English conditions. Mate, it was, it was unbelievable. And for, for me personally to, to tour with um, Terry Alderman and Jeff Lawson, guys that had been there before and, and guys that had done um, reasonably well and, and in Terry's um, case really well, to have those guys there as senior players just – uh, pushing you in the right direction um, was yeah, it was a real godsend for me. Yeah, gosh, I remember that was one of the first real test series that I watched as a as a kid that I really remember. Yeah, so you're just making me feel old now. Whether it was <laughs> whether it's listening on the like listening on the radio or you yeah. know, watching the first um, session on on TV and that as well, it was a really special moment that was you know part of the time that really inspired me to you know to be to follow the dream of cricket because um you yeah. know that was a really special time in Australian cricket and to be able to sort of be engaged you know with the incredible things that you guys achieved over there to be able to win an Ashes series in England gosh what's that like uh, oh mate hadn't, hadn't been done and to regain the Ashes hadn't been done since Bradman's Invincibles and um, didn't go missing on the boys, I, I tell you. But um, a, a lot of things happened. Like I said, we got the three back from the South African tour, but also um, Alan Border had sort of grown into being a fantastic captain. And, mm. and what people don't understand, he went and played county cricket for two years before that uh. and virtually just getting a dossier on on all the players that we're going to come up against. So <laughs> we'll come up against a bloke that we hadn't seen before. And AB just go to his notes and just say, right, this is what this bloke does. This is where he hits him. This is where we bowl to him. And they worked out plans to to Gower and Gooch and um, the the better English players. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting that a lot of people said that the overnight success of the Australians. But like I said, for for four years, had been building to that. Um, two years previous in '87, the the boys went and won the World Cup in in India, um, and they they. Got a lot of confidence from that. And Bob Simpson's view was, you know, we're just slow progress. It's not going to happen overnight. But when it all clicked in 89, 
Um, a lot of people said, yeah, yeah it was overnight success. And you just think, well, it was four years of, of bloody hard work, to be honest, mm. to, to get to that um, situation. But, yeah, great tool to be part of. For sure, on and off the field. By all reports. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sponsored by a brewing company. Giddy up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Merv, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to detour into um, create-specific lessons that you've learned. And for it, so from a bowling point of view, was there one specific technical um, component that really stands out to you that you worked on and developed? So from that time on, you knew if you did that and brought that every time you bowled, you're a great chance of being at your best. I was very lucky in in my development that I came across some some really good people. Um, so as a 14, 15 year old up at Myrtleford in Country Victoria to to play along the side along with a bloke by the name of Bob Steer. Now these names aren't going to mean anything to anyone, but he was just a an outstanding cricketer and really good, really good now. And you used to sort of hang off every word he said. And uh, we used to play the Sunday representative comp under twenty one. I think I was only sixteen at the time. And we had the captain of that, Steve Felstead, um, who was who just had a great cricket brain and just dragged everyone along with him. And then to go through, there's a couple of fast bowls at Werribee that I, I idolised in Jeff Bean and Jeff Bullman that were a big help when I, I went back there. And then to get into the, the state squad, and when I first got in there, trained along the likes of Max Walker and Ian Cullen and Alan Hurst, mm. um, you, just, you just have a look at them and you to, to be honest, you're a little bit blown away. You, you get to training for the first time and you just have a look at these blokes that you've been watching on TV for probably five, six, ten years, to be honest. Um, so I, you can't, I can't remember any one technical um, thing that helps because I think once you get into to club cricket and state cricket, so if you're being picked for underage development, I, I reckon it's just been... Um, a good foundation set by uh, your junior coaches and then um, just a, a lot of help along the way. But probably most of the advice um, that I remember is is the the mental intake of it, just the, the mental side of it. And then they say that the game's 75% physical, 25% mental. I, I reckon it's opposite. If, if you haven't got the right um, attitude, then you're not going to make it. You can have all the skills in the world and we've seen guys with a heap of school that, that don't make it. I, I just think that uh, most of the guys that, that make it have, have just got that real tenacity about them to, to want to succeed and and not be satisfied because I've seen a, a lot of guys just satisfied with what they've achieved and as soon as you're satisfied, you, you don't achieve anymore. So okay, so from a, from a mental perspective, then what, were you were you always built a certain way, or did you have to like develop things from a you know when you first started in your early twenties and that to be able to really then be the best the best you could be as consistently as what you were? Just always a big kid, obviously. Mm. Um, so in my age age bracket, always always one of the the taller kids and, and stronger kids, and then. Um, I, I can just remember always playing age groups up. So, mate, to be to be at Bartown. So, Dad was a teacher. He moved around a bit to be at, at Bartown and playing under 16s when you're um, 11, 12. Um, to be playing senior cricket, um, albeit in, in the bush when you're 14, 14, 15, um, certainly helped push your development. And then sort of coming back and and making. I think the big one is making the decision to move on. And a, and a lot of guys don't want to leave their mates. Mm. Um, but 
yeah, you make a decision to move on and, and you've got to live with that. And a lot of guys don't don't want to do that. I just enjoy playing with my mates. Well, mate, I think what makes good better is sacrifices and probably the challenges you're prepared to take up. And is that something that you that you did sort of thrive on in a way? Was the were those challenges and the sacrifice you had to make? Because you're absolutely right. Like if you want to push the limit of how good you can be, there you do have to make sacrifice. And there's always going to be challenges that sort of there could be roadblocks that that you could go either way. As a probably 17, 18 year old, I was seeking AFL football. Yeah. Um, so I went down. I got invited down. It was in the, the days of zoning got drafts. So I got invited down to Geelong, and I thought this is me. I'm going mm. down to Geelong. And then at that same time, around that same time, I got picked to play for Victoria. And then mm. you find out down the track that cricket was losing a lot of guys to football. Mm. So if, if a young kid was heading towards football, um, you got picked. And I got picked out of nowhere, to be honest. And blokes like Damien Fleming and Tony Dodamo and Jamie Siddons and Simon, Simon O'Donnell down here in Victoria. And, there's, there's probably a heap in Tassie and South Australia and West Australia that, that got picked too. But that that was to to give us something to think about. Mm. Um, and I suppose things opened up. So I played I played in a, a first 11 premiership when I was 16, 17 and, and did okay in that. And then the, the next year I was playing state cricket. So you don't have too much time to think about it. You sort of just pushed into mm. it. And um, that, that came around... Um, you know, the, that World Series time where a lot of players were taken out and and for for Victoria, we had a, guys like Hurst and, and Max Walker um, retire. We had um, Pup McCurdy, I think, went to South Australia. So there was, there was doors opened up and, and again, um, just had, had the opportunity, just right, right place at the right time. So, um, but there's a lot of decisions made for you at, at times. I, I remember going down to Footscray as a, um, sort of middle order batsman um, and, a, and a part-time bowler. And Ron Gaunt, who played test cricket, was a bowling coach down there. And I said, what do you do? I'll bat and bowl a bit. And I said, all right, I'd have a bowl in this net. I reckon I've bowled three balls. He came across and said, right, mate, you don't bat anymore. You're a bowler. I'm thinking, well, how easy is this? <laughs> how good's cricket? I don't have to even think about it. And talk about it, and we, we know what, eh? The fast bowlers aren't, aren't that cluey. Um, and, and you like things in black and white. We don't like the grey area, do we? Yeah. But in that grand final, the words of um, the coach to me, I will never forget. So you know how you go in and, and, and someone talks about where you've got a bowl and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And uh, we've had 220 on the board and everyone said it wasn't enough and we're playing against, say, Kill, who had a pretty good batting side. Uh, we had them six for 75 overnight on the second night. And on the, the third morning, um, boys are getting ready to go. Our captain coach, Lindsay James, walked over to me and he said, you bowl one in their half, you will never buy, you will never play cricket for Footscray again. And I'm thinking, well, how good is this? <laughs> Just run in and, and bounce a poop out of them. So mm. you, you do that and, and you get a bit of a reputation for being uh, an angry young man and that, mm. that certainly helps. Yeah, so I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move back to the technical side of things because like – 
I find it fascinating to see, like, obviously you're a, you're a great athlete. You had a like, great run up um, and your, you know, your bowling technique was you know, very, very sound. But like, as, as you're running into bowl, was there a technical sort of thought that was going through your mind, whether it was, uh, was it your run up speed? Was it like, you know, your front arm or your wrist position? Was there one, like one thing that you just, you did focus on from a technical point of view to sort of give yourself the best chance of the ball coming out exactly how you wanted to? When you say technical, I probably look at in injury prevention. Yeah. Um, so when I first started, I just had the straight run up. Mm. So I ran in straight and front foot splayed out towards point. Mm. Um, and when I got when I first got in the state squad, there was no mixed actions back then. There was no workloads and that. And, and everyone tried to get me more side on. So I had stress fraction and that obviously from bowling across yourself. And then mm. when Alan Conley came on board with the state squad, um, we're having to talk about different things. And I was telling him about the problems. And he just said, well, why don't you – I can sort of vaguely remember, why don't you run in on an angle so when your front foot plays out, it's actually splaying towards the stumps. And I thought, oh, I'll give that a go and started to do that and just just seemed to work for us. So – whether that's a, a technical side of thing, but yeah. I, I saw it more as an injury prevention. So um, people say, why, why do I have such an angle runner? And that was actually designed to get me side on so I could bowl. And uh, the big one is at, at top level, because I used to bowl big hooping in-swingers, and they mm. just said, mate, you bowl in-swingers at, at this level, you're just going to get hit. You've got to learn to take the, the ball away from the, the right-hander. So I uh, just modified that run-up. So instead of running straight line, you run on – on an angle and then straighten up at the crease. But um, it, you feel like a bit of a hi- hypocrite when you go out and coach kids and say, run in a straight line. And yeah. you just, I'm, I'm waiting for one bloke that, mate, I've just seen you what used to running on an angle. Mm. It, was a, it was a straight line angle, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah just, just things along the way that, that, that certainly help. But I, my best mate in, in any team is the wicketkeeper. Mm. Um, so you, you want to know whether you're hitting your gloves. And sometimes you, you feel really good and you're having to talk to the keeper. So, mate, you're not coming through. So it means you're not getting through the crease. Mm. So I used to rely heavily on the, the feedback from wicket keepers. So Ian Healy, uh, Darren Berry and, and Mike Dimitina for Victoria and uh, great mate Rona Reaver at Footscray um, mm. used to spend probably half the day talking to them about you know, how, how the ball was coming through. It's it's fascinating we said that about like technique technical side of things for injury prevention because from fast from for a fast bowler that's actually a lot of it comes down to technique for injury prevention to be able to do what you need to do to try and take off um, pressure from certain areas of your body that you yeah your natural sort of technique sort of loads up yeah well that's that's the way you mean you see a lot of young kids that are really raw and um you have a look at them and people just say, well, they're going to get injured. Have a look at that action. And you think, well, what can you do to modify that? And mate, I was, like coaching kids, you, obviously, I think I'm pretty good at, at identifying talent in that. But if if you ask me to, to modify an action, I, I couldn't do it. And um, Tim McCaskill at, at Cricket Victoria when I was mm-hmm. at the Renegades and when I was working with the under-19s, I, I'd tell them what they were doing wrong and he could tell them how to correct it. Yeah. Um, if, if that makes sense. So yeah. if, if they weren't getting side on, if they, they weren't, and then you have a talk to him about the impact the change is going to have on their body mm. and it was going to have too much of an impact. You, you couldn't do anything, could you? Yeah, exactly. So so from that time where you started to you change the angle of your run-up, that did make a big difference to be able to get, like without even thinking about it, you got more side on, so you, then you could actually have more chance of swinging the ball away as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it all worked and that. 
So the first couple of years for Victoria, then I had a bit of back trouble. And then um, I reckon 80, 84, 85, um, decided to do it. I went on an SA scholarship to England in, in 83 and got to play under Mike the Ness at, at yeah. Essex Seconds. Yeah. Um, and he was fantastic too and learned a lot under him and, and came back with stress fractures yeah. and missed most of the next season. So just had to modify things so I, I could actually play. Yeah. And then um, uh, still, still trying to combine football with cricket and playing football at a a fairly high level, just decide to give football away. And um, it's, it's amazing what sort of impact that has on the body too. So mm. that, that certainly helped. Merv, across all cricket, you played 165 first-class games and took 593 wickets as, as a frontline fast bowler. So what were the lessons that you learned throughout your career to manage your body as well as you could to be able to continue to bowl as fast as you did throughout your whole career? Um. But I, I, I think it comes back to attitude um, again. And see, so we we didn't have sort of workloads. And um, you know, if, if I went if I went to training and said to a coach I was going to bowl, you know, twenty four balls at training, they'd, they'd laugh at you. And they say, right, that's the first half hour. What are you going to do for the next two hours? Probably for for me, the my biggest driving force was like I realised I was never going to be the best player in the team. So I I tried to be the best trainer. So always always carried a bit of weight and always um, always got sort of criticised for that. But I, I always prided myself on on being able to bowl as as quick in the last session, in the last 15 minutes of the day as I did at the start of the day. Um, so you, you can't do that if you're not fit and strong and you can't get fit and strong if you're not doing the training. So always training. If I had specific parts where I was falling down in the game, then that's what I'd work on. So if when I first started playing um, shield cricket, for, for instance, the second innings was a problem because you're not used to playing four-day cricket. So my my thinking was I had to get fitter and stronger. So before before training, um, you know, you might go on a 10K run. So you're, you're bowling when you're fatigued and you're learning to bowl when you're fatigued because I reckon in the modern day now and, and get down to club cricket down at Footscray, when blokes get tired, they have a rest. And that's when you can tell a lot about um, a person's action and a, a person's ability to, to play under a bit of duress. Mm. Um, so, you know, if I, if I was having trouble with the new ball, I'd get to training, do my warm-up, um, do a little bit of fielding and, and actually try and simulate the, the start of a match day. So when I bowled my first ball in the nets, that was the first ball in the game. Mm. So you wouldn't have a wouldn't have a sort of run in and, and warm up bowl for, for 10 minutes. You just get yourself ready, make your run out up and and run in and bowl and just just train for specific moments in the game and try to try to replicate what exactly where I was falling down in the game um, to do it at training so I'd improve at it. And what you said there, like it's one of the testaments of a fast bowl is whether you can maintain your speed from the first session through to the end, you know, the end, the last, the last over of a, of a day's play. So to be able to do that, obviously you needed to be fit and you had a long run up and a bustling run up. So what was, what fitness did you do? Was it more like long, longer running? Was it road running? Was it shorter sprints? What was like your fitness to be able to, to be able to do that. Well, it's more it's more endurance, isn't it? Cricket. It's it's not 
Um, it's not high impact, so it's not as though we've got to do short, sharp sprints. And mm. but but obviously for your runner, um, you, you're doing that. So I, I used to do um, a lot of long running. So uh, might be a 10k run or a 5k run um, in pre-season. I, I don't remember having a talk to the guys in the under 19 Victorian. We had an under 21 development squad that um, um, used to work with with Neil Buzzard and. Just asked a question one night, um, has, has anyone trained to exhaust you? And they sort of looked at you, why would you do that? And, well, to know how far your body can go. Mm. So I, I reckon mm. I, I didn't do it that often, but occasionally if if I had, you know, if I had four months off in the, about the two months, you would you would train to exhaust you. Then you probably need a week off after it, mm. but it would be – Couple eight hundreds, couple four hundreds, two hundreds, one one hundreds. Um, try and do a fifteen minute run. Um, do do all that, and you just think at at the top level, your mind's got to know what your body can do, and vice versa. So um, I, I talk to kids now and just say, mate, your your mind will give out before your body ever ever does. So you're going to think you're tired before you ever are, and if you don't know how far you can go then you're going to give up earlier. But if you've got peace of mind that, yeah, I am tired, but, geez, I've been tired of that. I've I've trained to this point to to do a little bit more, then then you can do it. But if if your brain shuts down, and that's what I said, mate, physical, there's physical side to it, mental side to it, and the mental side, and especially in this day and age with the amount of cricket that's played, the mental side is almost more important than the physical side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's not until you really you really I suppose think about it and dig deeper into it is yes you you try and you develop the skills the technical skills and the fitness levels and all that sort of thing. But if you haven't got an understanding of what the best version of you looks like when to actually access all your skills, then your ability to be able to perform consistently is is very much reduced. So in that in that light, Merv, what did the best version of you look like when you were having a great day? And you were bowling really well. What what did the best version? And this is mentally. What was what was going through your mind as you're running in a bowl and and the energy that you had? Because once you're able to define that, you understand that, then you can bring it consistently. Yeah. To to be honest, not much. Basically, I reckon when things are going bad, you, you're thinking about correcting yourself or you're thinking about doing something. When things are going well, you're just running in and to right top of off stump top of off stump, top of middle stump, and everything's falling into place. So so there's no there's no doubts and there's no second guessing. So you you don't you know that you don't have those days all that often. But when they come along, you you just gotta ride them. So um the the days where you roll up and, and there's just a, a little a, a breeze at your back and you're just thinking, oh how good is this? And then um because a, a lot of times I reckon bowlers get the breeze at their back and they just try and overcook it. They just try and, and bowl too fast. So just keep things in perspective. Um, understand the conditions that you're playing in. Understand that the, the uh, opposition you're playing against. And and more, more and most importantly, I reckon, the situation of the game. What, what's it need? Does it need to be – does it need me to be attacking? Does it need me to be defending? And um, if, if I wasn't sure about that, you, you talk to the skipper. And normally – as a fast bowler, if I look around the field and think I've got one slip, third man, 
um, deep point, I'm, I'm tipping I'm, I'm not attacking with that field. So it's just understanding the, the situation of the game and, and what's required from you at that point. But probably, and, and just skimming back to that, that training, the best advice I was ever given and the, and what I hang on hung on to the most was when I got down to Footscray and, and with this Ron Gorn, he just said to me one night, um, the harder you work in the easy times, the easier it becomes in the hard times. And I sort of looked at him and as, as a 17-year-old, as a what the hell does that mean? Mm-hmm. And he just said, mate, if you're going to take shortcuts of training, you're going to take them in the game. So mm-hmm. when the heat's on in the game, you're not going to be ready for it. But if it's, if it's 40 degrees of training, you look at everyone else taking a rest, if you can run in hard and, and do your session, you'll be able to do it on Saturday if it's, if it's the same temperature. And that's that's something that that I always took with me, and that's that's why I reckon I, I trained probably as as hard as I could. But I, I used to come off from training just absolutely spent because you wanted to get as close to um, match day as, as possible. And if you came off with plenty in the tank of training, I'd probably go for a five k run because I knew I hadn't done enough. Mm. Yeah, it's what we said there is around the physical and mental preparation. So, like physically, your 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 body's pushed to to know what the limit is or where you can get to. Yeah. But then mentally, you know that you can push to that to that point as well. Because as you said um, before, like your mind's going to give out before <laughs> and and yeah. give up before oh. physically your yeah. body gives up. So like, if you if you don't know exactly mentally where that limit is, then how do you know? And that's a training. How do you know where it is in a game? And then just little little things along the way. So. You know, to to understand about bowling, a lot of a lot of guys bowl don't understand about bowling. Like simple things where where you look is important because if if you don't know where you look and things aren't going right, how do you correct yourself? Mm. So yeah. how, how many guys run in and bowl short down the leg side? Well, what are you looking at? The batsman. <laughs> where where do you expect the ball when you when you're looking at the batsman and, and things like that? So have have your own plans in place. Um, you're going to get, as a young player, you get a lot of advice. And, and I once got told, never dismiss any advice from anyone. Um, take it all on board and then sift through it and find out what's going to help you. Mm. But you, you could be down at, at club training and you know, an old bloke walks past and says, oh, you, you're doing this. And, you know, what do you know, you silly old boy? Like, like the boys down at Footscray say to me now. But... Um, <laughs> You, you just say, you just take it on board and, and have a think about it and then you put it into practice and if, if it does work for you, you think, well, that's not bad advice and if it doesn't work for you, it's it's there um, but you, you sort of shun it to the, the back seat a bit. It is one of the biggest challenges to actually work through as a as a cricketer is the advice you get. Yeah, absolutely. Because you get a lot, you get a lot of advice from a lot of different areas, and that's actually at times like for me, that has actually been one of the biggest challenges is to be able to dig through the because people have only got the best intentions. It's there just to help you. Yeah, for you, yeah, the cricket academy. You're mm-hmm. at at Tassie for a while. You're at Queensland. You're at New mm-hmm. South Wales. You're in and out of the Australian side. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got. Coaches along the way, you got coaches at, at club level. Oh, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do, and, and your head just gets filled, and you just, Jesus, but you can't. The thing about it is, and and you, I reckon what we tend to do these days is overcoach young kids, mm. and you go to coaching clinics, and and you hear a coach don't do that, 
don't, and you just think, don't ever tell a kid not to do something. So, and especially if a kid's got pace. Mm. And the, the worst thing you can say as a bowling coach to someone is, what I want you to do is slow down and bowl straighter. No, no, no. What I want you to do is run in and bowl as fast as you can mm. and we'll find a way to straighten up. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you have a look at, at some of the, the best bowlers and, and the, the guys that have got those unlikely actions at Malinga. Mm. Um, Tate, Sean Tate's a perfect example. Mm. You have a look at his action, and that's what I've said to Blake's. If you were coaching him when he was 12 years old, no, no, mate, you got to stop, stop it. But it's it's the difference that's unique that gives him the pace that he's got. So if you take that away from him, he's just back to run-of-the-mill, you know, 10 out of 10 bowlers can do this. So Tatey was that that one out of one out of well, one out of a hundred that could could bowl the pace that he, he could by by doing something a little bit different. Exactly, it's a great it's a great point there, there, Merv, around making making kids just develop their own natural skill and then just and work with it, not actually turn everyone into a prototype of this is well, this is how you do it because this is what the book says and this is how you have to yeah. do it. So well, yeah, then then you have all robots. I did a bit of work with Cricket Victoria at one stage and they just said, come in and coach the coaches. Okay, mm. so um, we went to a, a, a indoor centre at the other side of Melbourne and we had a kid there from Carlton Seconds um, who unfortunately was a pretty good bowler. So he, he didn't really need too much coaching. So he just said, right, have a look at this. So he ran in, bowled his three balls, bowled his first four balls, get the coaches get okay, what do we see? Oh, he's got a mixed action. His front foot's going here, his front arm's going out there. And I, I said, did anyone look where the ball was going? Mm. What? I said, did anyone watch where the ball was going? Well, no. I said, wait, you can have a kid with the worst action in the world. If he's hitting off stump every ball he bowls, do you have to change him? Mm. Like imagine imagine Jeff Thompson coming through now. Yeah. Yeah, no, mate, no, no, can't do that. No, you, no. Nah. No, you can't hop in and, and no, nah, we've got to change that. We mm. just want to go. And you, you just think there's there's so much talent lost by by guys that are trying to create this perfect textbook cricketer. And mm. probably the guys that are, are almost more successful are, yes, they're, they're fairly, fairly good textbook, but there's just something a little bit different about them. Yeah, hundred percent. And that was within Australian cricket. That was with um, legs, leg spin for a long, like through my generation. All the leg spinners were taught technically to bowl exactly like Shane Warne. So all that natural sort of feel and skill out of the hand was just but, coached out of them, and they all just sort of crash and burn the end, unfortunately. Uh, mate, Warnie, Warnie was a once in a generation. So <laughs> it's it's interesting. People want to get vision of Sir Donald Bradman hmm. and what Sir Donald Bradman did now. What Sir Donald Bradman did in his time is going to be different to what players do now because of um, uncovered pitches to covered pitches, uh, um, the evolution of, of the pitches that we play on, mm. uh, the evolution of the players that we play against. So everything's um, just got got better, and it's not as though it's it's different, but um, you know it's it's just a different time. So to say that like Sir Donald Bradman playing now. You, you, mate, anyone that averages 99.9, you, you know he's going to be successful, but just how, yep. how successful he's going to be. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I sort of sit back and when people talk about Bradman, you think, well, understandably he's a fantastic player, but would it, does he run up against a, a Ricky Ponning or mm. a Steve Smith? Or So everyone's different, aren't they? 
And that's, that's the same with the bowlers. Yeah. How cool would that be if you could actually bring everyone in the same era? All those amazing, oh, like they're great, and see actually what they oh, – it'd be oh, super cool to see. Yeah. Oh, mate, it would be fascinating. But, yeah. you know, it's like it's like comparing uh, different players from, from different eras. Mm. Uh, now, people say to me, would you play now? <laughs> no, not a chance. Well, you, you seem pretty confident. Well, mate, I'm nearly 60 years old. There's, there's no chance <laughs> I'm going to play today. <laughs> you know, time warp. You think time warp yourself? How how are you getting the game in front of Hazelwood, Stark, and and Cummins? Well, they're, they're three pretty special players. And then, you now Nathan Lyon, if he was twenty years earlier, he would have come up against Shane Warne. Yeah, like Stuart McGinley. So, yeah. Well, like if there's no Shane Warne, he's probably five hundred, six hundred Test wicket taker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Plus tax, more than likely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was fascinating. Um, we had Stuart McGill um, on Lessons Over the Greats a, a few episodes ago, and he talked about that exact thing about you know being Stewie knew he was he would, if he had the opportunities he would have taken a lot of wickets, but he oh. the way he was able to deal with it mentally and compartmentalize it was serious. <laughs> was impressive because he yeah. had to, he had no choice. Yeah. Well, that, that's right. I mean, it's there's a, a lot of different advice you you get along the way, and you know that that work hard through the easy times. Um, was was one, but when I got the first class cricket, um, Paul Hibbert always used to say, "Control the controllables." Mm. I used to look at him and think, "Control the controllables," and then you think, right, if it's out of your control, like you've got no say in it. So Stuart McGill um, with Shane Warne, like selectors have got to make a decision. It's out of your hands. If I if I play, I've got to prepare myself to play. If I do play, I've got to be at my best. So. Um, it's it's the same with any cricketer is that nothing's guaranteed. So what, the Australian team goes to South Africa and there's, there's no certainties because of, of injury and, and whatever. So the 17-man the squad that's going over there, every one of them's got to prepare like they're going to play because if they just hold off 10%, an injury happens, they're in the team, they're not ready for it. They, they left let an opportunity slip and... Probably that's you can't control the weather. Don't worry about it. You can't can't control the pitch. Both teams got a bat and bowl on it. Don't worry about it. What you can control is is your performance and how you go about it. Yeah, it's wise, super wise words, Merv. And that's the thing. Like, it's if if people can live by that, control what's actually in your control, and don't yeah. worry about the things you can't. It's incredibly yeah. powerful. <laughs> oh, incredibly powerful. Without that, and, yeah, and like, you, you would have felt that yourself with with injuries mm. um, and the outside views. Well, yeah. with with uh, social media these days, they aren't aren't people super helpful with their criticism. I mean, it's it's fantastic. It's, it's constructive. <laughs> Imagine being a young kid now. Oh, you're too fat. You can't bowl, and you think, mate. I had that said to me my whole career. I, you know, you, you put it on Facebook and it's amazing what people are prepared to say in social media that wouldn't say to your face. Yeah. And you just think, mate, there's, there's got to be a filter there somewhere. And you, you just look at it and when – I love it when someone performs well, the criticism stops. Mm. But as soon as they have a, a – what, what we perceive or what general public perceive – is a bad day, um, what I perceive to be an off day, um, mm. is the, the criticism that comes for it. And you just think, mate, and being a selector, people say, why do you pick him for? Well, believe it or not, we don't select players to fail. 
we actually select pies to succeed. Yeah. And it's like it's a whole new novel point to him because I, yeah. I did see reckon people think, oh, we, we're going to pick him just to stuff the team up. Mm. You just scratch your head and you think, mate, seriously? Mm. Yeah, just, but, mate, you, you copped it. Like the Mask Boys copped it. Mm. Um, Steve and Mark Waugh, when they started, Steve Waugh particularly. Mm. Wow, the what were they, the, the koala twins, the protected species? You look at them and you think, mate, they're, they're good players. Mm. Just... Just let them find themselves. So it's, yeah. I, I just sit back and and some of the criticism that comes for players and probably the the latest for, for Mick Stark mm. is just mate, just have a look at his figures. Mm. There's he's doing something right. Yeah. Okay, he, did you ever think that he might be a little bit overcooked? He might be a little bit tired with the work. Oh, he hasn't done that much. And you think like, wouldn't mind seeing you doing what he's done in the last twelve months just to see if he can stand up, but. Yeah, um, I, I can't. I can't understand the the people that sit back and are, are just so so quick to criticise. Mm. They just just take a a little bit of time to understand what the players going through. Yeah, social media is a is a is a new a new beast that there's oh. people coming through now. It's a it's a big challenge. Uh, but in regards to the media, the media obviously was around a hell of a lot when you were playing Merv, and now you've experienced um, the media in a big way um, with your presence in the media as well. So, from what you know now, would you would you have approached the media in a different way um, while you're playing? No, probably not. We we had a, a very open relationship with the media when I played, like. I think, so your last Ashes tour, how many media, Australian media people were on that? I'm not sure. It would have been probably, oh, with the written written media, there probably have been six or seven Aussie people who flew over and then um, then actual like TV, another probably four or five and then some maybe some other. Uh, mate, we, we had, in in 93, my last tour, we had five, five from print media and you knew them all. So they were at they were at shield matches. Um, they, they were approachable. If they if they wrote something that you weren't happy with, you just we, we need to have a chat. Yeah. <laughs> so, mate, how, how many times? And uh, Mark Ray from Tasmania. Did you play under Mark, or was he a bit before you? A little bit before me, yeah. Yeah. So he, he went into the media, and um, I, so many times he, he covered a little bit of Test cricket. So many times we need to have a talk. So in my office, and the office was just uh, the toilet at the hotel, and we just shut the door, and and, and like you, you weren't happy with some something, and now most of the guys that write don't know the players, like you wouldn't know what they look like. Yeah. No, um, exactly. So that that started to come in towards the end of, of, of my career, and obviously they got a job to do, and I, and I really can't fault the media. Jesus, they they made me look like a a living legend, didn't they? So they had the work cut out there. Yeah. They were very good to me. Um, but they were they, they were very spiteful towards uh some guys. And it's amazing that people in the media get it in for one player and they just drive it in to that one player. Mm. And you just you sit back and you just think, mate, everyone can see through it. Mm. Obviously you've got a personal issue with this like just move on. Yeah. Okay. You probably you got a personal issue with something. You're better off not writing about them because it's it's conflicted, isn't it? But mm. in the media, I've, mate, I've you sort of sit back and I, I used to love when I played the past players in the media. So if they made a comment on TV, if, if they wrote a column, most of the time there'd be criticism there, and there'd be an answer for mm. you. 
Yeah. Now, this is what he needs to do. And what we find from the guys that haven't played the sport, they're just critical yeah. and they haven't got that that answer for you. So, yeah, I find it I find it pretty hard to take. And I've always said it, yes, they've got a job to do. Yes, they know a bit about the game, but because they haven't played it, they don't know everything about the game. Mm. So it's it's not gospel. It's ultimately it's an opinion. So you know when you when you're getting criticism and the answer, I'd love to see that. Yeah, I, I like the old one. He should be dropped. Well, yeah. if he gets dropped, who do you pick? Well, I don't know, but he's not making runs. <laughs> yeah. Or the other one is he should come in. And mm. when I when I select go back to that, how many people said to me, Phil Jace should be in the Australian team. Okay, who do we drop? Justin Langer or Matthew Hayden? Mm. Well, I don't know. You're the selector, make a decision. <laughs> we have. <laughs> yeah. Brad, and being Victorian, Brad Hodge, you reckon I cop flack about that? Mm-hmm. Like, why isn't Brad Hodge in the team? Well, he's not going to open. Um, we're looking at that number six spot to be an all rounder because we're playing more cricket. Mm. And in our opinion, Michael Clark, um, Damian Martin, and Ricky Ponting are better players. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's just, and that's the thing. Yeah, and they look at you all. Well, yeah, and look, you used to have the conversation with Chuck. Oh, Darren, <laughs> so Darren Berry is Hodgie should be in the team. I said, "How's your mass, Hodgie? How's your mass, uh, Darren?" I said, "What do you mean by that?" I said, "Well, you can only pick eleven. Mm. So what you're saying is that we should pick twelve to fit him in, but you can only pick eleven. So your maths isn't that good. <laughs> so if we couldn't count." Yeah. Hodgie would be in the team. But because we can count, we can only pick 11. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's interesting just a view of, of – and state bias too. State bias is a ripper. Like in Victoria, everyone wanted Hodgie in. Do you reckon anyone in Queensland give a rat's clack about Hodgie? <laughs> oh, they're, Queensland they're still screaming out for Andy Bickle to be in the team. Yeah. And I agree with him. Oh, he should be still in the team. He's a ripper. Yeah. But he, and, and South Australia, um, you know, the, the push for Travis Head and Fergie and all those blokes. So everyone's just worried about their own patch. Just mm. broaden your horizons, have a look at the, the numbers, and you usually find a reason why blokes are being picked. Mm. Yeah, it's a great perspective from a selector's point of view, man. That's for sure. <laughs> be good for people to listen to. Um and just we talked about just going back on and on one point you said about the media is those social, those um, personal connections are so important. As you said, like you had personal oh, with the media because yeah. that's how it was built. Whereas now it's, it's very different. There's a, there's a, um, you know, one person as a starting point in between the player and the, and the journalists as well. Um, but those yeah. personal connections mean that they develop a personal um, relationship. So they've got more of an understanding of what's going on, especially when things aren't going, going well. So that's one thing that you said had it had during your time. I want to read something in an article that you don't get from the scorecard. Mm. And I I just think now that um, journalists to me have become a little bit lazy. And then when when something happens that creates news, they show what fantastic journalists they are because they, they get the scoop. And it's almost as though like when we went there we had cricket writers that used to write about cricket. And now I reckon Australian team, to say England, for instance, there's that many journalists over there, and I reckon sports journalism is their their second beast, but they're looking for that story that's going to rock the world. Mm. Mate, you're there for cricket. I, I want to read about cricket. I don't want to read about what players do 
after hours. I don't, I don't care. I want to read about the cricket. I want to read that, that Mitch Stark, Pat Cummins and Hazelwood are, are really looking forward to, to this. I want to hear that Nathan Lyon is looking forward to bowling at the at Lords because that that ball spinning down the hill is going to be, be really good for him. I want to hear about Tim Payne, what he thinks about how the bowlers are going because he's a keeper. Like, we haven't had too many captains that have been keepers. Like, utilise that. I agree. Spot on, man. Yeah. <laughs> well said. But that's just me. I'm just having a rant now, Lee. Yeah, and, and I, fully, <laughs> I fully agree, mate, in every, every way. But this is going to get into other aspects away um, away from cricket, and I really believe this is one of the most important life skills that most of us don't get much education on, and I certainly didn't throughout throughout my life. Um, but managing investing our money um, as well as we possibly can is so integral to making the most of what we've got. And I know you, know, yeah. you didn't play in the um, – in the professional era, but this is more so just around, you know, investing sort of ideas and, and strategies around it. So looking back from where you are now, would you have done things differently from an investment point of view with the, with the money that you did earn? No, pro- probably not. I, I, I've always had um, good financial um, support and good management. Um, so now with, with Chris Giannopoulos at Bravo, and it's it's a really good structure. Um, and before with with Peter Thompson at, at Edge Sports Marketing and um, Jeff Collinson, who I played cricket at Footscray with, who was um, an accountant and really switched on. So if I've got any um, any thoughts or if people come to me with um, investments or ideas, I'll, I'll just go to him. So. Uh, again, it was pretty much like my cricket in the early days. What I was, I don't make any decisions, so I rely, I rely heavy on on people around me and and their knowledge. And if if they say that it's it's a good investment, you you get involved in it. And if they sort of frown at it, you, you stay away with it. And probably uh, property. So, um, so I've had at times the, the three place still paying the mortgage off, but. Um, three three places sold the place down in Werribee because we we fell a little bit behind and you know three kids will do that to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, you're just coming into all that. What? Well, good oh, luck geez, with that. Yeah. But um, yeah, so you, you just get. I, I reckon the people that don't struggle are the guys with sound people around them mm. and and good sounding boards. And and I've had that since since basically I was. I was 18, 19, so I really appreciate of that. Yeah, well, that's very fortunate because there are a lot of people out there who um, you think are got the right, <laughs> got the right motives, um, you know, yeah. and looking out for the your best interests. But then at times you can right. you can find out that it's certainly not that way. You find you find out very hard that they're, they're looking after their own interests. Yeah, exactly right. So how did you know? Like, you obviously that these guys were. Um, you know the real deal, and you knew that they had your best interests at heart because that's one of the that's one of the toughest things to be able to make sure that you are the person you do trust is the, is the right one. Yeah, well, I, I played cricket with this Jeff Collinson at, at Footscray, mm. um, and didn't know what he did outside outside cricket. Um, so we played in the thirds together, played seconds together, played first together. Um, and back back when I was, I reckon nineteen, I had a tax audit done, mm. and he said, "Oh, what are you up to tomorrow?" I, and I said, oh, I got a tax audit. And he got all interested. And I said, Well, he said, I'm an accountant. Oh, 
That's why I say boring. But um, he, he just went through everything. He said, have you got your pay? I said, I've got a minute. He had a bit of a look. He said, who does your work? I said, oh, just a, a local person. He said, no, nah, that's got to change. Come, come and see me. Have this tax order tomorrow and, and come and see me the day after. So I just put things in place. And um, he was one of the youngest partners at um, uh, Librand Accounting Service. So it was a, a pretty big brand that turned into to Cooper's Librand, I think it was, and he was one of the youngest partners. So he's, he's pretty switched on. And for, for me to have him in my life was was very, very, very good. Mm-hmm. And then um, David Emerson, the name won't mean anything here, but he worked at Cricket Victoria. And I had a mate down at Werribee being a, a manager and he just said, oh, um, oh, in in business with... Um, two other guys. Do you want to have? And so I went across to him, and he looked after us for a while. Then he got his job at Cricket Victoria as cricket manager, and one of the partners, Peter Thompson, I spoke about uh, before, was was good. So I was with him for twenty years. Um, he went through a well, might have been thirty years. Um, went mm-hmm. through a bout of, of ill health, and then um, just joined up with Chris Giannopoulos. and I've been with him. I wouldn't quite be ten years, but if you get close to it. Mm. Um, and yeah, you just they're good sounding boards. Mm. Um, and you know, they, they chase, chase up business for you. You sit down, have, have a talk about what can work and, and what can't. So it's, it's interesting to me that people just say, Oh, that, that's a good proposal, let's do it. And you think, Well, what's the product? Well, I don't know, but the money's good. No, mm. well, mate, we what I tend to do is, is look for partnerships. Um, and and look for things that are long term, not things that are going to be short term, um, short term gain. But yeah, yeah, all the conversations I have is about you know, about the product. If I if I don't know the product, I'll find out about the product, um, and then find out about uh, what they do and what sort of brand name they they've got and, and all that. So it's 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 not a Money it sounds stupid, but money doesn't motivate me that much. Mm. Um, but just being involved with with people um, that that run run good companies, mm. um, and then you can learn so much off of them too. And I've I've been um, very lucky to to be in position though um, with with one steel. So oh, yeah. used to be the old tube makers. Man, I was with them for 21, 25 years. Mm. And the guys that are at the top of that structure uh, are pretty good. So to, to have time with them and, and to talk life in general with them was was fascinating. Mm. They're, they're people that, that I wouldn't normally meet. So mm. they're head honchos of, of companies, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what would you say were your wisest sort of – in investments from a from a, from a younger age, getting into super at a young age. Mm. Um, so I, I when I first started working, I got told as a 18, 19 year old to to get some money into super and, and to start a, a super. So that that mm. was um, really good advice. Mm. And then uh, shares yep. um, to have a look at shares and uh, my my man's um, fairly conservative. Yeah. So he's he, he doesn't chase uh, the ones that sort of drop before. He's he's just looking for that steady rise. So yeah. I reckon I've had shares with BHP, Rio Tinto, 
uh, West Farmers. I reckon I've had them for 30, 40 years. Yeah, wow. They so just sit on them. Yeah. And to be honest, I, I don't know how to get them out even. I just get yeah. a letter, a couple of letters a year saying, Here, here's your Frank Dividend and here's mm. your unfrank Dividend. And you think, oh, how, how good is this? I, I wouldn't know how much worth I've got there, but it seems to be working okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's very wise, mate, because in the end, it's a lot, as you said, very wise. It's a long game. And the people, yeah, yeah the people who get caught up in the short, the short game um, yeah. in investment, investments, it's very, very dangerous, especially when you're just trying to make the most of what you got. Good advice, that When you get into mm. investments, look at it as a test match or a 2020. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're for the long haul, my friend. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um, and Merv, in regards to, um, from a business perspective, and I know like a lot of cricketers <laughs> always look out for a, for a great business to, to be a part of or invest into. Um, do you have any specific lessons that you've learned um, from being involved or investing in businesses, especially when things didn't turn out how you'd sort of planned or envisioned? Again, it, it comes down to not, not my decision, Shane. So yeah. it's, I work heavily off, off other guys and yeah. Um, yeah, there's been, been a couple of business ventures that I've been in and um, to, to get involved with the, uh, Anglers Tavern Hotel, which is a, a big pub down here in Melbourne, Western oh, yeah. Suburbs. So to to be involved with that and to see that grow mm-hmm. um, was was uh, rewarding. But also you learn some lessons out of that. Um, yeah. And then yeah, just just different things. So I, lessons like what out of out of that? Oh, just business lessons. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So I mean the the monthly meetings that you go into and and look you're going through um, financial reports and when you first start you're just thinking what well, this is just Japanese I can't read this yeah um, and then to to find out the structures of the hotel and different divisions and like you just thought I thought as a kid and I reckon everyone had a dream of owning a pub I, I just thought it was going to be easy to sell beer but yeah. apparently there's a bit more to it yeah. <laughs> um. Obviously, lessons learned there, just being involved and, and having an input. Um, and, you know, and ultimately, they're just ideas, aren't they? So you're sitting down as a, as a group of people um, with the, the same vision um, in, in tact is that you want this venture to be successful. So mm-hmm. what can we do to, to make it successful? Um, how do we make it work? So uh, just, just something a, a little bit different. But most, uh, most of my investments, as I said before, have been – so stock market and, and property. Yeah. Yeah. Just one thing that you've mentioned there, just around being heavily involved or involved enough to really understand what's going on yeah. and, and, and learning as well. And the one, cause one of the errors that I, that, that I made, you know, through, you know, up until the last probably couple of years was I invested in things that I, I didn't, dig into really at all. I sort of was very top level. It's a bit of conversation yeah. here and there. It wasn't actually, I didn't learn much about those experiences, whether it was yeah. like the strategy, like the numbers, like how things work. So um, yeah. if you're going to do something. Well, the, the right, big like thing, the big thing for me, what I was, if, if you're going to put your money into something, you'd want to know about it. And if you're going to put your name to something, you want to know about it. And um, probably, um, where you sit, so you, you get you, you get um, asked to do endorsements and and whatever. And I, I just find that if you're doing something where people are using your name, you've got to understand it. You've got to be able to explain it. And and I've been guilty of that with um, with certain things where you don't get heavily involved, and then you down the track you just think, oh, I've I've got to do more. I've I've got to make the time 
to do this. And um, once you once you get more involved and, and you learn more about it, and you understand it. Um, that becomes a lot easier. It's when you when you try to bumble your way through um, people asking you questions about it, and you realise I don't know anything about this. Mm. Like I've got I've got money invested in this. My name's on this. I've I've got to learn more about it. I've got to I've got to take more control of this. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Yep, it's very very good advice. Move one thing that I that I've realized <laughs> is that life is all about how well you bounce back from the setbacks that life always throws at you. Um, yeah. so, so do you have a mantra or saying in your life that helps you bounce back uh, quicker from the challenges that life always throws your way? Oh, it's just the old adage, isn't it? Get back on the horse. Like anything you do and, and cricket, cricket's a prime example. You're not going to be successful all the time, but if you work hard enough um, at your game, Things seem seem to go your way. So, yeah, mate, life, life is full of hurdles and speed bumps, I reckon, and and it's there to test you. And if things come too easy and it's not a challenge, I, I reckon that's to me that's a bit of a worry. And and to do with cricket more than anything else was to to get back on the horse. I I just felt that if I had a bad test match, I'd let people down. So it wasn't as though you got down on yourself. I got down because um, you got a captain there to do a job. Now he tells you when to bowl. He doesn't doesn't tell you to bowl absolute crap like you do sometimes. You've got a, a coach. You got selectors there. And I I just worked on the theory that um, if I had a bad game, I let people down. And probably a, a mantra for me for a long time was don't let anyone down. And if you don't let anyone down, you, you're doing your job. Yeah, it's brilliant, and you're and you're right. That's a the one thing when you when you, especially in a team environment, a team sport. Um, yeah, you know, that's one of the things that you just you don't want to let your team down. You don't want to let your yeah. your mates down and the people who you know support you. Well, exactly, your teammates. Like if if you drop a catch or you know you, you need five runs to win, you get out for a duck. If you you know if you bowl badly in a, in a tight situation, um, you just feel. And when I say so many people, like. There's ten, 10 other blokes with you on the ground too, isn't there? Yeah. So, man, they they look at you. You know, you know they're looking at you because you you're buying. You just think that's the last thing I want to do is let these blokes down. So, um, it's it's an interesting one. Um, but it, understand there's going to be good days and bad days, yeah. and certainly at international and state level, if you're having more bad days than good days, you're, you're not going to be there for too long. Now, that it normally it normally finds a way is that. Um, if you're doing what's required, you, you stay around a, a little bit longer. And if you're not, you, you get moved on pretty quickly. Yeah, one thing that's really stood out to me um, during this during this chat, Merv, is one, the, the dedication that, that you had and the sacrifices that you did make. And what you said there around getting back on the horse, like obviously you certainly did and you had to. You know whether it's the stress factors in your but stress factors in your back or the setbacks the setbacks that you that you had through through your career. It's it's it is so important. Otherwise, like if you don't get back on the horse, then what you just got to you got to move on to something else. I think sporting people, while they're very re- resilient, they're also uh, I'm not sure the word I'm, I'm thinking of here, but you're very reliant on other people. So mm. if I've got an injury, and Errol Orcott with the Australian side was fantastic. The mm. the guys that we had with with the Victorian side were fantastic. We had Greg Hoy that was a 
um, a doctor with Victoria for after me. Geez, as long as I can remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're the guys that you got to have faith in. So if they're saying, right, you've got a you've got a hamstring that's going to be six weeks. Well, I'm going to turn it into four weeks. No, no. If you do that, it'll then be three months. So just do the right. So you, you've got to have the patience um, and also, I suppose, the, the intelligence not to, to rush things, To again, to listen to people. Um, and I relied heavily on on doctors and physios and, um, you know, well documented that, that you had a, a few injuries too. Just a couple and while of you, While you're walking <laughs> around and, and you're looking good people, why aren't you playing? Well, yeah. I've got a bit of a, a side, a bit of a side failure, and you think, well, mate, I can't do what I'm supposed to do with this injury, so I'm, I'm not playing. Um, but Errol Walcott with the Australian side um, for for me was fantastic because, I, like, if you had an injury, he would just say, listen. It's going to be painful, but it's not going to be any worse. Mm, it's not going yeah. to get any worse. Yeah. If you had that knowledge, you, you could play. Um, and then you'd have other things that, that there might be a hamstring strain. Well, it's not that sore, yeah, but it will be if you keep going. Mm. So you you tend to rely on other people for that that information and people with knowledge. Mm. And the, for me, the guys that, no, nah, no, nah, nah, I can get through this. And when I was selecting too, you, you see guys trying to push through injury uh, and you can't do it. Mm. It's, it's damn near impossible. And I, I reckon you try for a little while and then you just say, right, what do you want me to do? Because the guys that tried to rush back, and I dare say it happens in, in any sport, is that the guys that, that try and rush back inevitably are the guys that, that miss more and more games. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's that's why you need a strong personality as well, like Errol Alcott, who yeah. we, all, we all love. He's obviously – he knows so much. He's got an amazing oh. um, knowledge on, on the body, but also he's a strong character yeah. to say, this is how it is. Um, yes. And – and you and you listen because you know it's you know it's gospel. Merv, you've met and been around some of the most successful people in the world. Um, who has inspired you the most, and why? Well, I don't know how many people say it, but um, father, um, just dad was um, a very very good country sports. had a, had a lot of injuries, um, so I had sort of knee injuries, and um, so he had reconstructions before I reckon they were invented. Oh, right. um, so I got a. So to, to watch to watch him play and to to learn a lot from him, from him obviously um, helps you along the way. And um, what do I say? You, you're a product of your your parents, aren't you? Mm. So um, mum and dad, I, I look at them and think think they've done a good job. Um, people may argue with me, but no, uh, that, you, you just can't be um, you can't show them enough for for what they've done. But from from a, a sporting um, side of things to to watch um, Ian Chappell, Dennis Lilly, and Rod Marsh when I was growing up. Uh, those those three for me, the the big three. I, I just call them. They were, they were fantastic. One that's a little bit weird, but the other one, Bob Willis. I used to love yeah. Bob Willis when he played. Yeah. Um, look, used to look at him, and he, he, he was never the best, but he just had a go. Mm. He just always seemed to be in there having a go, um, and. Um, he was, he was when Clive Lloyd, um, Clive Lloyd of the West Indies, just the, the way that he got that West Indian side together um, and the, the way that he batted. Um, you just, you sit back. I, I could watch um, highlights of those guys for hours and 
It's interesting now that people think that back injuries are, are a, a modern-day thing. Go to the MCG and have a look at the statue of Dennis Lilly and, and read the plaque. Yeah. Like, mate, he had – he was playing with – like, I feel like a bit of a wuss. I had, I had two vertebrae cracked on one side and one on the other side. He had five vertebrae cracked both sides and he oh. kept playing. And you, you sort that? of yes. – but people think it's a, a new phenomenon. But injuries in sport and especially um, back injuries to bowlers through um, workload have, have been around – for, for a long time. And I, I must admit, you think that it's at the advent of one-day cricket, um, 2020 cricket now that, that you guys play so much of, and you're playing more and more cricket now. Um, and and that's why we need that rest and rotation policy is that one, it, it sharpens you up physically and gives you that break, but the other one is mentally. Mm. So you, you just got to be um, so mindful of, of guys these days that, you don't get a break. You, you're virtually on call 12 months of the year. Yeah. So you come out of one tour and you go to the next tour. So uh, the, the Australian boys have just finished here. There's um, the 2020 tour in New Zealand. There's a test tour to, to um, South Africa. So whether whether that goes ahead, um, still a little bit of uncertainty, but hopefully it will. And then they just get ready for the next one. So there's no there's no time off, is there? Like when I played, your starting point was start of October. Your finishing point was end of March, unless there was an Ashes tour. And every time I went to England, I had trouble with my body playing 12 months of the year. You just can't explain to people how much like – it mightn't be the workload in games that does the damage. It's just preparing yourself to play those games. You, you've just got to be fit and strong the whole time. You've got to be on the ball the whole time, which yeah, I, I must admit I don't envy the, the modern-day cricketer to – to having to be virtually at their peak fitness 12, 12 months of the year. Yeah, the biggest challenge with that is is more so that there is no off-season to be able to, one, regenerate, yeah. but then, you know, retrain. I said to be able to sort of yeah. get your body to a stage that can that can absorb playing, you know, um, you know throughout throughout the year without those without those off-seasons. And even with that, there's, there's the technique side of it um, too. So if you're just ongoing, ongoing, very hard to, to – Tinker with a, a technique, whether it's batting or bowling, just to, to change something. I reckon it, it takes a good couple of months to do. You're not going to do it in a couple of weeks because you you just under under pressure, under fatigue. You just go back to to what you know. And when you've if you've only practiced it for maybe four weeks, when you're under pressure, you just go back to your old self, and that's that's what you're trying to get rid of, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, this is a final question. I'm so grateful for, for your time and for these awesome uh-huh. insights. It's great to great to chat to you, mate. Um, I, I love reading books and watching awesome documentaries. I always love learning new things. Um, so can you give me a couple of either your favourite books or documentaries that you've um, watched or read um, that have had the most impact on you? Uh, the biggest impact the book ever had on me was Ian, Ian Chappell's coaching book. I read it came out in about 1976. Yeah, right. I reckon it's the only book I read from cover to cover. Yeah. <laughs> read about 20 times. And, um, mate, I, I'm just into to more sporting books and, yeah. and people that that impress. I, I find it very hard to read books from people I don't know because mm. um, it hasn't got that, that meaning to me. So, um, you know, things, things that come out. And to, to be honest, it, it's amazing – how many people, and you would have had 
people come to you with motivational techniques. Mm. And it's it's amazing um, how motivated people seek motivation techniques. You know, you, you shouldn't have to, yeah. you know, the motivation <laughs> person shouldn't come to you. You, you should be going to them. So the, the motivation books and that I, I don't really get is that they're trying to, um, I suppose, get through to a broad scope and not everyone's on the same level of, of motivation. Um, finance books, uh, I, I work on the theory, if, if you're writing a book about finance and getting paid for it, your finances aren't that good. So, hey, that, that's just me. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just I just love reading about, like if, if Steve Wall writes a book or Ricky Ponning writes a book, they, so blokes that you know and and you, you admire and um, guys from, from overseas, so uh, Michael Michael Vaughan and um, Flintoff and, and those guys, um, the guys that I suppose because they're in my sport, Aussie rules footballers, um, I love sort of reading reading their stuff and not so much about because you know what they've done. I like to read about where they've come from and 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 what's changed their views and what what motivates them. Um, so to they're not mate. I'm I'm the biggest sports nuffy going around. I reckon I, you, you get. Like I, you walk into a room of cricketers and you think, "Oh, happy days." You walk into a room of footballers, and I, I turn into a teenage kid. You just really <laughs> hide all that. You just basketball is the same. So, um, yeah, you just get a. You can't. I, I work on a theory. I, I can't see what I did was special, but other people do. And then you think of how I think about other people in in the sports that they play. But um, being being blessed with the life that I've had to to meet so many good people and so many people from, from different backgrounds mm. and to to get a story of um, how it came to be, I reckon that's that's more important than the actual, what they've actually achieved in sport, you know, to, to hear what they did as kids, to to hear what they did a little bit differently to to get them noticed or um, how they got lucky. Um, it's, it's amazing uh, how many people you talk to and how many sportsmen you you just had a window of, of opportunity that was just a jar and they yeah they, they just um, flung it open but uh, quite often that that door only opens a little bit if you're not prepared to kick it down then that that passes you by. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that back, the Europe move, that 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 backstory of, of people is always is is absolutely always very fascinating because everyone's different. As you said, that little everyone needs luck along the way. You need that little bit of bit of luck to be able to then try and you know capitalize on it. And and just what you said there, move around like the impact that you had on people. You certainly you 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 had that on me. You inspired inspired me and all my mates growing up to be able to want to want to bowl like, want to bowl like you. Um, so and that's that's well, the impact that you have. <laughs> Who was that? Was that me you are talking about? <laughs> no, no, that's it. If I inspired you, you would have been bowling half volleys at league yeah, start. Like, I've seen the bowl a lot of those. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on this episode of, of Lessons Learned with the Greats. You were an inspiration for a generation with that wholehearted way that you played. And now it's been very special to hear your amazing insights that we all can learn from. I am so incredibly grateful for you to share all of these experiences with all of us. Um, and we are all that much richer for digging deeper into the mind of one of the greats of world cricket. Thanks, Merv. You're very kind, mate. Oh, mate. Good on you. Although you, 
to be honest, you really didn't have to dig that deep, did you? Yep. It's not, it's not, not too deep, my mind, I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, mate, thank, thank you very much. No, what, what you're doing and um, with this podcast, to get it out there, just the, the different people that you talk to, um, been fantastic. So uh, thanks for having us on. For more episodes of Lessons Learned with the Greats, head to t20stars.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.